Oh, well, that uh, trope of TV shows and movies is well known, isn't it? There's someone pursuing, discovering, finding something powerful, and then the ensuing chaos as they seek to possess it or use it. And there's always, there's always some kind of catch, isn't there, with power. Whether it's the, the Lord of the Rings, who famously Frodo has the, the one ring to rule them all. And he actually needs to destroy it because it's harmful, dangerous. But he's tempted to use it. Whether it's the Marvel movies and the whole sweep of them that build up around the infinity stones, these stones of power that they're pursuing on trying to destroy or trying to gather, trying to use. Uh, whether it's Aladdin and he discovers the genie and has three wishes, the power to do whatever he wants with a few catches, a few <laughs> limitations. But it's, it's, it's so common, isn't it? That thing, we, we know how it's going to go. The power is pursued. We want it. We love it. We dream about what would we do if we had that power? How would we use it? How do we change things? How could we make things better? And especially if we're talking about absolute power, how could we make a difference? How would we change the world? How many people could we heal? How much suffering could we alleviate? How many hungry could we feed? How many prisoners could we release? How many warring parties could we bring to peace? How many people could we save? As you watch those movies, as you think about power, as you dream about what you would do with it, is it something that, that brings excitement? I think it is, because that's, that's what those movies are based on, that catch that we, we all tie into. We would love to have power to be able to use in these different ways. Power is something we'd be proud to have in, the, in this way. Be excited about it. It's, it's something that we wouldn't kind of just put away and forget about, is it? We might try and we might keep it for the right occasion, but, but ultimately we'd be thinking about how do we use it? How do we make the most of it? How do we take advantage of that power? Well, as we come to Romans 1, 16 and 17, as I mentioned earlier, we see here that God has given his power in the gospel. And as the Apostle Paul, he's introduced himself in this letter, he's explained that he's a servant of the gospel. He's been set apart for the gospel. Sorry, he's a servant of Christ Jesus, set apart for the gospel. He's been appointed to minister particularly to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. He's even talks about himself as being obligated. Uh, you might read this and think he's not in a very enviable position, this Paul, being a servant, not the kind of class of society you'd prefer to belong to or the slave class being someone, especially for the Jews, who was being appointed to serve those they traditionally thought unworthy, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, being in the position of having a debt 
You might think that Paul is not someone who's in an envious position. Even he's been frustrated in the ministry he's trying to do. He hasn't been able to do what he had planned, what he'd wanted. But here we get a stark statement, a statement that in one sense sets up the rest of the letter in summarising its big picture message. But it begins with the words, Paul says, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel, this gospel message that he's been set apart for, this gospel message that he needs to bring to the Gentiles, this gospel message that obligates him to serve them, even this gospel message that sometimes results in frustrations in ministry. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. And it's as he unpacks the why of this that we really see what his whole letter is about. Uh, Would you turn with me and and read from Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul is not ashamed. We know what it is to be ashamed, don't we, in different circumstances? It's where we, we have some aspects that we know is unworthy. And we don't want people to see it, to know about it, to be exposed in our unworthiness, our weakness. Things we're embarrassed about whether it's the, the simple situation of the child who has, doesn't have the brand name shoes that everyone else has, maybe he's ashamed in their company because his shoes don't reflect that same spirit of winningness, of prosperity, of being in the coolness. Maybe it's the shame that we have talking about something that we've done, something that we've done wrong. Instead of being open and and willing to share about, we try and hide that section of our life. Whether it's something that's happened in foolishness or or sin, sometimes there's a shame. Uh, Particularly, it's it's well known that, that people who have been convicted of a crime will often try and hide that. They'll try and suppress their conviction. They even go as far as changing their names and trying to set up a new, new identity because they have a shame about being convicted of crime. Sometimes it's not even what we've done ourselves. Sometimes it's what someone else has done, isn't it? Where we can be ashamed of. Someone in our family has done something we're ashamed of. We feel the weight of unworthiness. And it is a weight, isn't it? A burden of shame. 
things that are weak, things that are not recognised as important, things that are looked down on by others, we don't like to be associated with them. But Paul, despite all that's against him, beside all these ways he's described himself, that may not be enviable, says he is not ashamed of the gospel. And as he unpacks it, we're going to look at this in two ways. There's two aspects that he's not ashamed, I think, we need to draw out. Firstly, he's not ashamed of the, of the gospel because it's God's power. It's a powerful message. And secondly, he's not ashamed of the gospel because in it, God's righteousness is made clear, is revealed. And that is something... That brings him no shame. We're going to look at these two points. Firstly, the gospel is the power of God. This is verse 16. Paul says, The gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone. The gospel is a message, isn't it? It's news, it's an announcement. And yet, it's just words, it's an, it's an idea that's expressed. It's very, it's intangible in that way. In lots of ways, it seems very weak. The message, especially about the message about a crucified king. And when we think about God's power, what things are we likely to think about? We're likely to think about him creating the world out of nothing, speaking the world into existence that we've just been reading about in Genesis 1. That is powerful, isn't it? We see God's power, let there be animals on the land according to their kind. And it was. That's powerful. We think of the demonstrations within creation of power. We think of volcanoes that explode. We think of cyclones. And yet God created all this. All the ways that we see power expressed in the world around us. God created the very system that upholds all this. Maybe we think about the way that God has intervened in the world miraculously. The parting of the Red Sea. Like surely that is a demonstration of God's power, holding back millions of tons of water so that his people could pass through and be safe from the Egyptians chasing them. Or the miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000, more than 5,000, 5,000 men and all the others who were there from just a few loaves and fish. That's powerful, isn't it? Multiplying what was needed and what, what, was, what was had to provide for what was needed. Defying the laws of nature. That's powerful. Or even when we see him raising the dead. When he says to the little girl, get up. And she does. Power over life and death. This is, this is what we usually think about when we think about God's power, isn't it? The remarkable big demonstrations and yet here Paul says the gospel is God's power for salvation 
these weak words, this message that in itself you, you can't even touch. This is powerful. Why is this God's power? Well, because it brings salvation. It is power that works to save people. Not just some people. This is a message that can bring salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. This is power to change hardened hearts, isn't it? This is power to turn those, as I mentioned before, from being God's enemies to being beloved children. This is power to to change people from being on a road towards death to being on a road to life. The power of eternal destiny, heaven and hell. Although it doesn't seem much on the outside, just some words, a foolish message, as Paul describes it in another book, 1 Corinthians. It is the power to give hope and significance, to change lives and families and communities and societies and history and the world. It's not, it's not showy power, is it? In the same way that volcanoes are. It's the subtle power. It's the power of a seed that drops down on top or in a small groove in a large boulder. And as it sprouts and water falls on it and its roots start to grow and penetrate into the rock, little by little, the seed can break apart huge boulders. It's the power that, that you don't expect, that's subtle in its working, from the outside doesn't appear significant, like a tiny seed, and yet can shatter the hardness of our hearts, the ignorance of communities, can change the trajectory of whole nations. This is power to bring salvation. So Paul is not ashamed of this because it is powerful and it is powerful to save. And he's very clear he can save everyone. Everyone who this message comes to can be saved. Everyone who believes it. And first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, he recognises the priority of first God's ministry through two words, his Old Testament chosen people, they are the first ones who received the promise of this gospel, who received the good news in its forward-looking format. And even when the gospel was first first revealed, when Jesus himself arrived and gathered people to hear and be taught about his kingdom, it was to the Jews that this message first went out to. 
and when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost and Peter preached the first Christian sermon, it was to an audience of Jews who had gathered there from different places around the world. But it doesn't stop with them. The message is first to the Jews, but then to the Gentiles, then to everyone else. The disciples had the responsibility to bear witness to Jesus' resurrection in Jerusalem and Judea, the homeland of the Jews, but also in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This message, this powerful message that can bring salvation, was designed to spread through the whole world. How does it bring this salvation to everyone? Well, we get a bit more explanation of this in the second, second verse. We see Paul's not ashamed of the gospel, not just because it's powerful, but because in it God's righteousness is revealed. It's made clear. See verse 17, Paul says, In the gospel, the righteousness of God is is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last just as it is written in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 the righteous will live by faith what is righteousness that Paul is saying here is revealed in the gospel it's a big word and it's one that we hear in different ways at church it occurs a lot in the Bible what does it mean what is righteousness well Righteousness means uprightness, the state of being right. It's having moral worthiness, and it's particularly used in relational contexts. Having good standing in relationship. People can be righteous before one another if they're in good standing. And especially in the Bible, we focus on the good standing in the relationship between God and us. It's often used in a legal context, as we'll get, we'll see more as we get into Romans. Something that's declared, something that's a category that's used significantly. And here we see Paul focusing not just on righteousness in general, but on God's righteousness. In the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed. His uprightness, his moral worthiness, his good standing in relationship is revealed, is shown. It's his acting faithfully towards people, towards the whole of creation that he's made, towards the people that he has particularly chosen and made special promises to them and covenanted with them, to all the peoples of the earth. It's tied very closely with his justice. It's to do with him acting rightly towards people. And there's different ways this, is, this works out, isn't there? Towards people who are sinners it is right for God to act by judging them, by punishing sin. But curiously, throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, we hear of God's righteousness 
describing his acts not just of judgment, but also his acts of deliverance. That God acts rightly when he saves people, when he delivers them in acts of mercy and grace to establish and maintain them in a good relationship with himself. This is, his righteousness is often paired with salvation. And just as Paul does here, did you notice there's kind of a parallel in these two verses? The gospel is the power of God to bring salvation, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed, the righteousness that comes by faith. They're, they're in parallel. You can read about it in the Old Testament if you like, uh, particularly Psalm 98, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 31, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 45 has several mentions to God's characteristic of righteousness and his behaviour and his, his identity as saviour. Here we see, Paul says, the gospel reveals God's righteousness. It reveals God's act of rightly, of rightly making sinners in good standing with himself. His act of bringing salvation. Now, as we read our other parts of the Bible, we know that God achieves this through the death of his righteous son, Jesus dying in our place. We know that this means that we can have right standing with God, not on the basis of all the things we've done, of our ability to get our act together, but on the basis of Jesus' righteousness, the righteousness of the Son of God being counted as ours. And Paul is going to go on to unpack this in more detail. And here in this verse, he's just he's kind of summing it all up in two sentences, what he's going to spend chapters unpacking. And we'll come back and dig down further into the glory of this. But Paul is not ashamed of this gospel because it is the announcement of God's righteousness. That God is acting rightly, bringing salvation to people, to all isn't it? To all who believe. How can, this, how can this righteousness be available to all? All who are wise or foolish? Those who are Greeks or barbarians, cultured or uncultured? Those even who are Jews, God's special chosen people? And those who are not? The Gentiles. How can all these people receive salvation through the gospel? Because in this revelation of God's righteousness, there is no prerequisite. There is no minimum standard of goodness. There is no group that you need to belong to. There's no set of rituals that you are required to pass through. What does it take to receive this salvation? For this power of God to be at work in you, to bring life, 
Well, Paul is emphatic here, isn't it? The righteousness that is by faith, from first to last, from beginning to end, from the start of the Christian life, through every day, until Jesus returns. Christians, uh, we receive God's righteousness, good standing with him through faith. Just as is written in Habakkuk, this is not something new, Paul's saying. This is the same good news that has been promised through the prophets. The righteous will live by faith. As it's their faith that will enable them to live. Now, this is the good news. God's righteousness is revealed. Good standing with him is possible. Not on the basis of what we've done, but because he gives it. He brings salvation to us, to all who would believe. As we read these words, just at the start of this letter, it's right for us to ask ourselves, are we in this category? Are we the people who have heard the good news and been brought salvation? Have we responded by believing? Have we responded with faith? Have we been willing to receive the gift of grace that we we just sung about? God's act of giving salvation. Recognising that Jesus is the righteous one died in our place. Maybe you've got questions about it. Maybe you haven't worked that through. That's, that's perfectly fine. That's what we're on about as a church, isn't it? Continuing to grow in understanding this. And if you've got questions, I'd love to hear them. I'd love to help you think about them further. Please talk to me after. We shouldn't... Uh, we, we want to be people who live by faith. But secondly, like Paul, we want to be people who don't just live by faith but people who aren't ashamed of the gospel. It's easy, it's easy, isn't it, to be ashamed of the gospel, to fall into the trap. There's people we know, we're, we're unsure about how they will respond if we explain the gospel to them. So we find it easier to swallow what we want to say instead of sharing it. It might go well, it might go badly, we're just not sure. Keep it hidden. There's people that we expect uh, have been hardened to the gospel, maybe through their circumstances of, of life already. They've grown up. They had a bad experience of church. They heard it and turned away from it. They're hardened to it. And we feel like, oh, do I need to tell them the gospel again? They've heard it before. They know what it is. I need something else. Need, need a demonstration of resurrected Jesus to wake them up. Sometimes we feel like the gospel's it's not enough. We want something more, something more exciting. We're ashamed of its simplicity, its weakness. Maybe there's people that you've been previously rebuffed by or people that are actively hostile towards you as a Christian. We think, 
they're so negative towards it. Maybe we think that they're, they're beyond what the gospel can do. In our, in our age where our community is increasingly sceptical and antagonistic towards the Christian faith. I think we feel this more than ever, don't we? The gospel that we know and love and share just doesn't seem that significant in the face of a world so powerfully rolling on against Christian, the Christian worldview. Now we need to hear afresh and be reminded of what Paul says here. The gospel is God's power for salvation for everyone. For everyone. For the person we're not sure how they will respond. For the person who we know is already hardened to it. For the person who is antagonistic. For our society that seems increasingly turning away from the gospel. The gospel is God's power for salvation. For all these people. This is the method that God has determined to use to change people's hearts. And who are we to say we need something more? Through the gospel, God has changed the hearts of sinners before. We have seen its miraculous work in action, haven't we? I hope that you can identify the gospel's miraculous work in action in yourself. Because that's where I have seen it most clearly. Doing the impossible, changing me, refining me, making me more like Jesus. God's righteousness has been revealed. It's a powerful message. Not like a volcano, but like the sea. It may, may look unimpressive, but has that subtle power to be able to crack rocks apart, to be able to break in to what seems impenetrable, to bring enemies to repentance, to revive communities to life, to change eternal destinies. Friends, we are seeking to be one gospel family, one family founded and rooted and identifying in the gospel. People, not of volcanoes, people of the, of the subtle message, God's power for salvation. Don't be ashamed. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work of your gospel in changing each one of us. And we pray that we would not fall into the trap of seeing your gospel through the world's eyes as something foolish, but that we would see it as you've revealed it to be 
your power for salvation. Help us to be confident in this message and not ashamed. Not ashamed of its work in our lives. Not ashamed to share it in the lives of others. And we pray this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.